Growing Up Baby with Haley Zimak. There's a question that will likely last well beyond those first 18 years of life. What kind of parent do I want or need to be? On the heels of our little guy's first birthday, it's been on my mind a lot lately. No longer is he just eating, sleeping, and being. Now we need to actively educate, shape, and guide. You know, parent. So if you're like me and exploring your options, you want to hear from one of Canada's leading parenting experts. Alison Schaefer is a family counselor, author, and international speaker. She promotes an evidence-based, firm but friendly democratic parenting style. Alison, I'm fascinated by the Adlerian psychology, or as you presented in your books and your podcast, Parenting the Adlerian Way. For those unfamiliar with the concept, can you please explain the philosophy behind this method? Absolutely. So um, Adlerian psychology is um, uh, based on the um, uh, workings of a um, gentleman named Alfred Adler. And just to put him in, in space and time, uh, Alfred Adler, Carl Jung, and Sigmund Freud were the three intellectual sparring partners that really moved psychology into the modern format that most people would know today. And it's so interesting that people know Freud and, and um, Jung's name, but a lot of people don't know Adler's, but arguably much of what his concepts were really got embedded in society. So he's not, he's not some weird, strange cult figure. He really is a, just a historic figure that, whose name is just not recognized. And so, uh, one differentiator for, uh, uh, about him from the other two big minds was that he was very interested in concepts of social equality and cooperation. And he wrote, um, and lectured and worked in his community in Vienna to um, have child guidance centers and taught parenting courses and worked with school systems. And it's stated that he um, reduced juvenile delinquency in, in Vienna. Um, so his his works have been now proven evidence-based. We, we know that they're effective. Um, so long history there, but I got excited about it because I'm third generation in my family to be an Adlerian parent educator. Um, and I lecture on this around the world and I've, I've, um, worked with some of the masters, which is really exciting, but why I think parents should be excited about it and why I think this is, um, a philosophy. It's not only a psychology, it's a philosophy for living, but it's really predicated on some of these values and on the, the psychological underpinnings. And here's one piece that I think, you know, is, is helpful for parents to understand um, as a differentiator. We really see children as um, social creatures who have, that are born into the world with a very immature brain, but they're very keen in their observations. And so they start from a young age exploring, as you say, that first year of life, trying to figure out how do I belong? And what is my significance? And they do it by interacting with other people. And they learn from the responses that they get from other people. And then they have to creatively decide um, how to handle situations in life and what they're learning from those social reactions. So there's a, the creativity of the child. Um, so when we start to see behaviors and, and misbehaviors, and, the, <laughs> and I'm sure you've, this is why I think it's good that you're talking about how to raise your kids now at one. We don't really think of kids as misbehaving under the age of one, but at some point I'm sure you're starting to have things where you go like, he is doing that on purpose, you know? Mm -hmm. Dropping so, the spoon, dropping yeah. the cup because he sees it all pick it up. Exactly. That's such a great simple example. And it usually starts with such simple things as that. And so um, 
a parent would, if, if we see that it is repetitive and that it doesn't meet the needs of the situation, um, a parent would call that a misbehavior. But we reframe it in Adlerian psychology and we say like, it, well, misbehavior is a very parent-centered kind of language. From the child's perspective, um, their behavior is 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 not a, is not a misbehavior. It's a mistaken approach. It's the creativity of the child that they have figured something out that if I drop that spoon, you'll come over. So they've learned this social interaction. So the 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 dropping of the spoon from the parent is a problem. I wish they'd stop doing that. I don't want to keep going over and picking up the spoon. Why won't they just eat? From the child's perspective, it's a solution to a problem. And so they're not going to give up doing something that solves a problem. So the question becomes, what problem are they solving for? So in Adlerian psychology, we say that these misbehaviors are co-created. It's an interaction between a parent and a child. It's not just the child behaving poorly. It's the parent responding to the child that reinforces what they're doing. The child, the parent is the one whose response helps the child reach their goal. And under the age of 10, there's really only four goals. One is attention. The other is power. The third is revenge. And the fourth is assumed inadequacy. So we always start by paying attention to the pattern. What does the child do? How does the parent respond? How is the parent um, feeling when this happens? And what, what does, how does the child respond? How does the child respond to the correction? And so once we figure out which of those four buckets, I call them dances in my book, Honey, I Wreck the Kids, because it's, it is like a dance. These, these interactional patterns feel as different from the salsa as uh, from a rumba, from a waltz. And you get very quick at learning which ones they are. And then from understanding which dance or which pattern of interaction you're in, then you decide on the corrective strategies, the discipline strategies. So what I find that with a lot of the other parenting techniques, they're not actually getting to the heart of the problem. There is a lot of putting band-aids um, on symptomatology without understanding some of these underlying deeper psychological pieces for the child. So we see them as a whole, a whole person, and we see where they are in the, in the structure of the family. So I'm looking at family atmosphere, I'm looking at birth order, parenting styles, and I'm trying to learn the child's unique way of being in the world. We call it lifestyle. And a lifestyle is sort of like the way that you would recognize a painting by Van Gogh, even though you might know not every one of his works, you'd say, I think that's a Van Gogh hanging there, or that looks like a Keith Haring, or that's the new, that must be the new Ed Sheeran album. We, we have a fingerprint and a unique way that we move through life. And I'm trying to work with families to figure out what that is so that I can help them get into healthier, cooperative um, uh, patterns of being and move away from the tradition. I'll wrap up on this. I know there's a big answer, but, but there's, um, and to move away from, uh, other styles of parenting where we come from this long tradition of obedience and using punishment and rewards in order to get a child to mind our will. And instead with Adlerian, we're trying to raise a child who behaves, but they don't behave because they're going to be punished or rewarded. They behave because it's a choice, a, a personal choice to be pro-social and to make good choices with their behavior in order to contribute to the group because they're social creatures. And we're wired to be that way if we parent properly. Hmm. Okay. I love that. So one of the theories, and, and this is just what you, you've been saying, is that every person is an individual. They were created in early childhood by their early life experiences. So when you say, you know, good, you're thinking about this at one, I'm really glad to hear you say that because I thought, you know, is it too early to have this conversation or how can I start implementing these types of strategies now? So what would you say to that? What, what can I and, and other parents do this early on in a little one's life? 
he's already been learning from you. I don't know if you've had that situation where, you know, you know, he must have learned like with my daughter, I'd put her down on the change table to change her diaper and she'd immediately put her legs in the air. She knew what was coming next, you know? (laughs) So they're always, they're always learning right from the get go. But now it's more that you're going to have to get into correction and guidance child. And I like the word child guidance better than the word discipline. Discipline does mean disciple to, to teach, but it doesn't mean spare the rod, spoil the child. You know, it really came from shepherds getting their sheep up the hill and they would tap them gently on the shoulder to guide them towards pro-social behavior. So now your little guy's up on his feet and he's interacting with the world more. He is going to get into some, he isn't going to like get into a cupboard he shouldn't or touch something he shouldn't or, you know, um, smack you when you're carrying him or you know, I don't know what kind of little people things he's doing. And so we need to be able to guide him to say that those things are not okay. You know, we would prefer if you use gentle hands or, you know, those, we didn't go into that cupboard. Um, it's unsafe or whatever it might be. And so, um, he's going to learn from how you respond to those situations. And we want to do it in such a way that we are firm, meaning we set good limits and boundaries. Kids need limits and boundaries. And, uh, it's interesting because in this day and age, parents are so concerned about stifling a child's personality and their free will and their lovely spirit that they're afraid to set limits and boundaries, or they're afraid when a child is, gets emotionally upset because you've said uh, that they can't go in the cupboard. And so they, we tend to have boundarylessness as a problem that comes up in homes. And that really makes life very chaotic for a child who's trying to fit in, do right, do good. We need the social rules. And um, so we're not helping kids when we don't set limits and boundaries. So learning how to set boundaries and um, create uh, predictable, consistent routines, all of those things make kids feel psychologically safe. So we need to set those things up and then enforce them positively. And that has to do with our, our attitude and our approach. So firm, and friendly at the same time. Some people are really good at friendly. Some people are really good at firm, but finding that balance between both holding the boundary and doing it in a kind, loving way, that's a bit, that tends to be a little bit more of an art form. Yeah. And sometimes I feel like I'm sending mixed signals too, because for instance, Silas will do something with the cat, you know, pull or grab the tail and I'll say, you know, gentle, gentle, and I'll take his hands, but then he'll, you know, do something funny. Well, he'll bury his face in the cat's belly and kind of, you know, and so I'll laugh and he sees me laughing and smiling, but at the same time, I don't want him to be doing what he's doing, but it is funny also, you know what I mean? Totally. Uh, and, and that's such a great example where kind of depending on our mood and our day, um, we may think it's really funny that, you know, they um, say, misspeak a word, and then right. it comes out as a swear word or something. And then we and we giggle and we laugh, which of course, they're going to go, oh, well, that, that got a nice reaction. <laughs> but then when grandma's over, and we scold them for the very same thing, they get very confused about that. So we do. So sometimes we do have to hold back the giggles, even though in our heart of hearts, we want to, you know, when they've got, when they've put the chocolate pudding all over their face and it does look cute and you want to take a picture, but we don't want them to do it. So we're, 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 we send those mixed signals all the time to kids. Yeah. Okay. So then how do we not send the mixed signals? Like, again, you, you gave a great example and this is what I'm going through. I'm trying to make something for dinner 
And there's one cupboard where he can't go in because we've just moved into a house and it's totally not safe and it has all our reno tools and everything in it. But then there's another cupboard that just has pots and pans. So for me, it is, it's easier for to let him just take out the pots and pans, bang around on them, but he can't go into the other cupboard. And so I know that this is confusing for him. Um, I take him away from the cupboard. I say gently, you know, no, no, I close it, you know, but what more should I be doing to, to make him know that you can't go in that one? but you can go in this one or should he just not go in, in either? Uh, so I think at this age, and, and we're always trying to take a developmentally appropriate approach, you know, I would handle it differently if he was six or 16. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, but for this age, I think the first thing is um, sometimes it is helpful to change the environment rather than constantly correcting the child. So it may be easier for you to put a safety latch that he can't open on the cupboard. He can't go in. So it's just, it, it doesn't require you know, a, a constant correction. Um, however, if you decide that you're, what you are doing, which is the, a technique called redirection, um, where you're basically just taking him by the hand and showing him, and what I like what you're saying is um, you're, you're letting him know what behavior is allowed. A lot of times when people are doing correction, like they'll, they'll say what they don't want, but they don't say what they, what the child should do. Um, so instead of like, don't spill your milk, it's like, you know, use a steady hand, so you, you want to be giving them new information and educating them. So what you're doing is you're redirecting him and saying, this cupboard is not okay, but here's where we play. And so you can just take him over. This is your cupboard. Here's your cupboard. And if he keeps going back to the other cupboard, I might say, I might then move from redirection up to a consequence. And a consequence is if we have trouble playing in the kitchen and not going into the um, proper cupboards, then we'll, then we'll not be able to play in the kitchen at all. And then I'd put up a baby gate and move him to the other side just for a minute, you know, or, or pop him in a, in a, a pop-up playpen or something and say, you need to show me that you can play in the kitchen and, and only go to your cupboard. Would you like to try again? So it's a very quick, you know, you're not, it's not like you're putting him in a timeout or anything, but you're getting him to understand if you'd like the freedom to be in the kitchen, then you need to also take responsibility for behaving the way you need to behave in the kitchen. Otherwise you need to leave the room. Okay. So it's, 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 it's um, a consequence needs to be related to the thing you're trying to teach. It's about educating, tying freedoms and responsibilities together. If you don't wear a helmet, you lose your bike riding privileges, right? Like yeah. wear a helmet, have the bike, don't wear a helmet, lose the bike. Um, and so what, mistake commonly happens is that parents think they're using consequences, but they're really punishing their kids because they'll say things that are non-logical. So they'll say, if you get in that cupboard, you don't get to have the iPad, no Paw Patrol this afternoon. Which That's is completely not re unrelated. To completely unrelated. Cupboards. Right. So what ends up happening is, so just so parents understand the mechanism is, then the child's perception of that is that you are an authority figure who has control over my happiness and I am under your thumb. And that sets up a superior inferior arrangement in the relationship. So just to be clear, because parents get confused when I talk about this, you are the authority in the, in the family. You are the, the, the leader of the family, just the same way a CEO is the leader of an organization. So you have more responsibilities, you have more decision-making power, all of that. Absolutely you do. When I'm talking about superior inferior, I'm talking about the perception of moving from mutual respect to somebody being degraded and disrespected. So when you control another human being, 
enslave them, degrade them, um, punish them. You're putting them down. And the consequence for that or the, the, the fallout from that is that the child, you're either going to hurt their self-esteem or they're going to, because it's the beauty of human nature, we want to get along with our fellow man. We don't want to be in servitude to them. They will, they will try to assert themselves and find some way to upset you or get power over you. So then we start to see, you know, the demanding child who refuses to put his socks on, you know, when it's time to get dressed or whatever. And they'll go, you know, fine, you know, you can take away my Paw Patrol, but I'm not going to put my socks on and cooperate with you. So to raise a cooperative child, we need to create conditions in the relationship. And that is mutual respect and closeness. And so when we punish instead of consequent, we lose the mutual respect and we create a fray in the relationship. So the likelihood of cooperating in the future is now diminished. Okay. And is that where that revenge aspect comes in that you mentioned earlier? Yeah. And you get little power struggles, which is the power, the goal of power. And then revenge, if they lose too many power struggles, they'll start to, they'll do kind of like tit for tat. Yeah, that's revenge. And then, and then the avoidance, the fourth goal is when they really, you don't get that showing up until about the age of, you know, eight, nine, 10. And those are kids who just feel so discouraged that they've just really don't want to try anything because they're, they, they just feel like there's no way to succeed. So these are the ones that end up going into counseling at a young age and things. Oh my goodness. Can you imagine? Well, I mean, of course you can. You've you've experienced it that by eight years old, eight years just doesn't sound like a long time, but that's why it's so, so important to to start this early and soon, right? And establish these positive, good parenting behaviors and patterns. Yep. So the first four to five years of life is when that lifestyle is being developed. And then from seven to about 10, they're sort of like living their life, living their, <laughs> their, their reinforcing so that by 10, it really becomes a conviction. That's not to say that people can't change after the age of 10. Otherwise, there'd be no such thing as adult therapy. <laughs> I'd say, yeah. sorry, you're 10, no hope of changing. Um, Obviously, people can always change, but it's much harder to change. And so it's interesting when I do family counseling and I'm working with the parent, you know, a 35-year-old mother has been living her style of life for 35 years, and she might be somebody who has a high need for control. She might be a real type A person. And she might, you know, that might have worked for her in the workplace and and in get, getting through school in her occupation. But suddenly she's got a little kid who doesn't want to do what she wants them to do. And that be, may be the first time she's ever had to like figure out other human beings. Everyone, she's only ever had adults that play, you know, they interact in an adult way. Whereas kids have no social compunction. They're like they'll lie down in the grocery store and have a screaming fit if you don't get them the chocolate bar. <laughs> That's that can that can really throw off a a person who's used to being in charge. You know. So, um, so ad- I find adults are, are harder to change than kids. And, um, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot that they can pick up quickly in the early years and you're really setting their trajectory. You really want them to have a healthy belief system that says, you know, I'm, I'm capable, um, that I count, that I belong, um, you know, that, that I can, um, that I can be courageous, um, meaning recover from mistakes. It's sort of part of the resiliency piece, you know, that I can manage what life throws at me, even if I don't know it all up front, you know, mistakes are learning opportunities, not, not personal failures. So those are mindsets that we want to establish in those first five years. I mean, this all makes perfect sense to me, what you're saying. I've absolutely loved this conversation. Do you find as a family counselor that you get parents that are just not on the same page where one wants to uh, parent, let's say in the, the Adlerian way and the other just doesn't or doesn't understand it? And how do you work through that? 
So, you know, I've been teaching parenting classes and doing family counseling for over 20 years and never have I done a parenting class where one person in the group says, well, you know, what if my husband and I see it differently? You know, he, he, he's more heavy handed and, you know, I want to do it this Democrat, you know, we're saying Adlerian, but it's sort of democratic parenting or positive parenting. There's a lot of brands that people would don't even know they're doing Adlerian parenting. Um, but, um, it's come up every, in every single course that I've ever taught. Um, so I just want people to know that's really, really common. And I kind of joke and kid with them and say, listen, if you both parented the same, one of you would be redundant, that our <laughs> children need to learn that, you know what, people, are, every person on the planet is different. And the things that the librarian is going to tolerate is different from your teacher, is different from your parent, is different from the the bus driver and the daycare worker and the nanny. And they need to learn different people act and respond differently. So I think that's important. And then I would say that for parents, one of the um, kind of golden rule is sort of agree to disagree. There's going to be things you're never going to see eye to eye on. So at least have the agreement. Whoever starts the discipline finishes the discipline. So if the the kid drops the spoon and dad takes it away and says, get out of the high chair, that's it. I'm, I'm fed up with that. Then instead of saying, no, that's not how we handle things like that. Don't argue in front of the kids. You can talk sidebar later and say, hey, that thing that happened with the high chair tonight, can we talk about how we, we're going to address that in the future? You can discuss it later. But in the moment, the kid gets down and they're going to learn that's what happens when you drop the spoon when dad's around. Um, and you might find out that, how come the kid only drops the spoon when mom serves dinner? Because <laughs> yeah. you're like, mom's a sucker, she'll pick it up. Um, so it's okay for you to parent differently. Kids will learn, this is what happens when daddy's around, this is what happens when mommy's around. That's that's completely fine. That does not confuse kids. Um, it's the inconsistency of sometimes daddy's mad when I drop the sp spoon, sometimes he's not. Mm -hmm. um, that's more confusing. And then the other thing, and this is really important, and I don't want to miss this point because I think it's so key. If you're going to have a family that is based on mutual respect and, and being close and close-knit and run in a democratic fashion to win cooperation, you have to have democratic processes in place. So part of the uh, a main tenet of Adlerian psychology is that you have family meetings. So if, if people are trying to figure out if their philosophy that they're following is Adlerian or not, I would say, like, if you're buying a book, open it up, look in the table index, and if it says family meetings, you know, and logical consequences, you know you're reading an Adlerian book. And family meetings are the place that we come together to help establish those those rules and boundaries together because kids are more likely to stay within the limits and boundaries and keep up with the agreements if they had some voice and say in them. Not all the say, Right. We see in a democracy, you always, you always have a say, but you don't always get your way. But when you involve kids in conversations, then they're more likely to be agreeable. Um, and so at those family meetings, that's where mom and dad or mom and mom or dad and dad, whatever your family makeup is, can, can talk together and say, so what, you know, we're, we seem to be having a trouble at the dinner table. People seem to be dropping their cutlery a lot and spilling their milk. How could we do that better as a family? So you're talking about it as a problem that needs a solution rather than a kid who's misbehaving. And when kids have a little bit of a say around that, then you can say, well, what should happen when people drop their spoons? Now you've got mom and dad and the child all talking about how this is going to go down. And so you're kind of making these little verbal agreements and you try them for a week and then you say, hey, did that new idea work for um, having uh, less kerfuffling at the dinner table? 
And you either go back to the drawing board and draw another idea, or you tweak it. Um, and you keep chipping away at the things that are hot spots in your family until you get them solved. So they're really important. I know he's only one, but that's going to be the, you start them as soon as they're verbal. And if people are interested, I've got videotapes of on my YouTube channel. Uh, I taped my early, videotaped my early family meetings and you can see my kids are like two, three, four years old. And I progressed till they're like, you know, you can watch a little snippets until they're like, I don't know, 13 or something. Um, because they're very different meetings when you have a three-year-old than when you have a 13-year-old. So anyways, people can check those out if they want examples of what it looks like. Okay, that's great. Thank you. And but regardless of the age, what I like about this and what resonates is it does go back to its core. It's that humanistic and goal oriented behavior of of treating and recognizing and honoring the individual as they grow. Yeah, because um, you just think about the differences in your marriage. You know, I remember, you know, one thing that came up at our family meeting was the fact that um, I, I was married when I was raising my kids. I got divorced when they were teenagers. But um, when they were little, you know, he liked a really clean house. And I'm a little and my kids are a little sloppier. We're different people. And, but he, his, he's, he has a need for order and cleanliness and we don't. But we all live together and we all share the house. So we talked about this, about how can we make it that everybody's happy? that, you know, we want to be a bit sloppier, but dad needs a little bit of order. How do we live with differences? Mm. And so, and we did, we worked it out because my kids said, well, we want daddy to be happy. You know, how would it be if we blitz the house before he comes home? And it's in, you know, would this level of orderliness be enough? And we we struck a, a balance that worked for everybody, but it's because they loved him and they wanted him to be happy in the family too. And so you might have the same with your kids. Like, oh, some kids, you know, want to hit the snooze button three times and they like to roll around in bed and other people pop right up. And so how are we, how are we going to work with that difference? Um, what, what's going <laughs> to work? You read my mind. I have two <laughs> early risers. So Ben gets up super early. The baby gets up super early. Me, I just want to be left alone in bed for another three to four hours. <laughs> yeah. And, and so that might work out really well if you can say, if I can get my extra time, you know, in bed in the morning, maybe the way that I could contribute is in a different way. And maybe I could do like the night shift tuck in or another uh, agreement that we had in our family came as a solution to a problem whereby when my um, partner would tuck the kids in, they would stay in bed. And when I tucked the kids in, they would get out and like test the limits all the time. So I, I sort of said to him, why don't you do all the tuck-ins? It doesn't have to be 50-50, like you do one, I do one. You're good at doing tuck-ins. Why don't you do all the tuck-ins? But you're really bad at doing homework because you have no patience and you, and you end up getting upset and you yell at the kids. Why don't I be the homework parent and you be the tuck-in parent? And so we're, we're still doing division of labor, but we've broken up in a way that just brings the most harmony to the home. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no divide and conquer and work to your strengths. That's, that's wonderful advice. Is there any final words or advice that you can that you can leave us with before we go? Yes, um, I would end on saying, you're probably doing it good enough good enough parent, <laughs> good enough parenting. Um, I, I think parents really worry now that we know that parenting matters. And of course, I'm, I'm here telling you parenting matters. I'm talking about shaping a person's life. But we get crippled by that thought. And we think, oh my goodness, you know, I'm going to have to open the bank account for psychological adjustments because I just yelled at my kid and I know that's not the right thing to do. Kids are very resilient and most parents are doing just fine. It is sloppy. It is messy. You are going to get upset set. You are going to pull your kid by the arm and stuff them in the car seat when you're like there. <laughs> we, we can recover and say, I'm sorry, not a good day. But honestly, just we need parents not to beat themselves up so much. We need to self-encourage and say, you know, 
Some days are harder than others, and that's the best I had today. But in the long run, I know that I'm, I love my kid, and I will accept my child as they are, and it will be enough. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please download, subscribe, follow, and share. Conversations may be edited for length and clarity. The information, opinions, and recommendations in this podcast are for general informational purposes only. The information is not intended to replace or serve as a substitute for professional advice, consultation, or service. Until next time.